many of us are so regimented and evaluate everything we say or even before we say it that that gets in the way of us actually being able to be successful in the first place and there's a wonderful slogan from improv that i i try to share with as many people as i can and, and it's quite simple it says dare to be dull Matt Abrahams is a passionate, collaborative, and innovative educator on organizational behavior, communication, and speaking at the Stanford University School of Business. Specifically, he teaches effective virtual communication and the essentials of strategic communication. Matt is also the co-founder and principal at Bold Echo Communication Solutions, a presentation and communication skills company based in Silicon Valley that helps people improve their presentation skills. Matt published the third edition of his book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, a book written to help millions of people who wish to present in a more confident and compelling way. He also hosts the Stanford Graduate School of Business podcast called Think Fast and Talk Smart, and he curates the nofreakingspeaking.com website. We hope you enjoy this episode with Matt Abrahams, where we discuss why public speaking is so difficult, effective tools for communication, and how to present better both in real life and virtually. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Leading the Rounds. We are so excited today to have a speech expert by the name of Matt Abrahams with us. Um, Caleb and I have been doing this for about a year, and I still feel like I'm personally not a great public speaker. So maybe I can pick up some good tips today. But before we dive into it, Caleb, how's it going? It's going great. Just studying a lot this week, got an exam coming up, but looking forward to this interview, looking forward to l- learning a lot from Matt. One of my goals in starting a podcast was to work on my speaking and becoming a better speaker. So this is a great episode for that. And then it'll also be a great episode for leaders. Leaders are going to have to present, leaders are going to have to speak. And so really looking forward to learning from Matt. Awesome. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm thrilled to be here. And I love that you guys put as a priority improving your communication. I wish more and more people would do that. Yeah, it's super important. Um, we believe that you know leaders have to be able to effectively communicate with their teams. But also as physicians, we have to be able to effectively communicate with our patients. And that brings us to one of our first questions, which is speaking is one of the most fearful and anxiety provoking things that anybody can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think on your website, you say that 85% of people report extreme anxiety in public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what can we really do to start to combat this anxiety that we get when we stand up in front of a person or a crowd? Well, that is a question I can go on for a long time. So I will try to be very clear and concise about it. But it, it is normal and natural to be nervous in high stakes communication situations, be it presenting to an audience, speaking one to one, standing up in a meeting. Uh, perhaps at some point we can talk about where that comes from, but it's not really that important. The fact is most people feel n- nervous in high stakes situations, and there are things you can do to manage it. And really those things come into two categories. There's symptoms and sources that we have to address. You as doctors uh, know better the biology behind the fight and flight response and what happens in terms of heart rate increasing, breathing uh, increasing and becoming more shallow, et cetera. There are some simple things that people can do to to address those symptoms. So first and foremost, people can take a deep belly breath, the kind of thing you do if you take yoga or do Tai Chi or Qigong. And interestingly, in a podcast I, I do for the Stanford Business School, I interviewed a cognitive neuroscientist. And when it comes to taking deep breaths, he said, what's not important is the inhale. 
It's the exhale that's most important. And it is during that exhalation that you release a whole bunch of neurohormones that can actually calm you down. So the rule of thumb is this, or I should say the rule of lung is this, to, to double the exhale to the inhale. So if you take a three count inhale, take a six count exhale, and you only need to do that a few times to actually reap the benefits. So that's one example. If you're somebody like me who perspires and blushes when I get really nervous, it's because your core body temperature is going up, like when you exercise or have a fever. So we need to bring that down. And a great way to do that is simply to hold something cold in the palms of your hands before you speak, your, your, the palms of your hands are thermoregulators for your body, much like your forehead and the back of the neck. If you've ever had a fever and you put a cold compress, it cools you down. The palms of your hands work the same way. In fact, on a cold morning, if you ever have held warm tea or coffee to feel it warming you up, uh, we're just doing the same thing in reverse. So those are some examples of what you can do to manage symptoms, and there are many others. But there are also sources, and, and sources come in all different varieties. If it's okay with you, I'll just share one example, and then sure, we can sure. perhaps talk about more. So many of us are made nervous about the goals that we're trying to achieve in our communication. Uh, much like uh, Caleb shared that he's got a test coming up, he probably is very nervous about doing well on the test. Well, many of us are very nervous about the potential negative future consequences that can result from our communication. So if I'm an entrepreneur, maybe I'm afraid that I won't get the funding. If I am a business leader, I might be afraid I'm not going to get the support for my initiative. If I'm a student, I'm afraid I might not get the grade I want. So our anxiety comes from a potential negative future outcome. And the way to short circuit that is to become very present oriented. If you're in the moment, by definition, you're not worried about the future. And you and some of your listeners might have heard of this notion of flow or flow experience. It's a big idea in psychology. And it simply means being in the present moment so engaged in what you're doing that you lose track of time and the future consequences. And there are lots of ways to get into that state. For example, exercising can help you do it. Take a walk around the building before you have a big talk or presentation. Uh, listening to music like athletes do before they perform their events can help as well. Something is as straightforward as start at the number 100 and count backwards by 17s. I pause because people are trying. That gets you very <laughs> present oriented. So the bottom line is this. There are things you can do to help yourself feel more confident and less nervous. And it takes a two-pronged approach, dealing with symptoms as well as sources. So I want to ask you about the symptoms first. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some hacks to mm -hmm. try to combat those symptoms. As a somebody who speaks a lot, do those symptoms ever go away? Or do you still have those symptoms come up even when you're speaking and preparing for a talk? So if I were not to go through a, a ritual, what I call an anxiety management plan, I absolutely would have some of those symptoms still, still come up. Now, the situations in which they come up are different. It's, they're fewer and farther between. But I, I don't think anybody truly ever overcomes their anxiety. I think we can always craft a situation that could make people nervous. But I also don't think you ever that you truly want to overcome all of your anxiety because it gives you energy. It helps you focus. It tells you what you're doing is important. So the goal is to manage, not to overcome. And the answer to your question is, yes, I still do experience anxiety in certain situations. And I, and I have a plan that I follow. I, I do three simple things. I start by taking a deep belly breath. I do a three count in, a six count out. I do that a few times. Second thing I do is I remind myself that what I am saying has value to those who are listening. 
a lot of us get wrapped up in our head and overjudge and evaluate what we're saying. And I simply try to make uh, myself aware or remind myself that I'm here in service of the audience. And that change in perspective helps me and others tremendously. And then the third thing I do, and this sounds silly, but it's my way of getting present oriented and warming up my voice, is I say tongue twisters. I say a tongue twister out loud. Nobody ever hears me do it, but I do those three things. Deep breath, remind myself I'm in service of my audience and, and say a tongue twister or two. And that helps mitigate most of the anxiety I feel. And I encourage lots of people to come up with their own anxiety management plans. I like that you brought up that you don't want to have no stress or no anxiety. And there's there's a curve that is called the yerkes dotson plot. And it's a graph based on stress and performance. And it's basically a bell curve. And optimum performance happens when you have some stress, but not enough. And then you can reach that flow state like you talked about. I awesome. personally never felt a flow state public speaking. Mm -hmm. I, I felt it, you know, I've definitely felt it playing sports. I've definitely felt it doing other things. And it's such a great experience to be a part of. And you, you almost want to chase that every time you're doing that thing again. What tips do you have for reaching that flow state when you're speaking? Yeah, so it, it's really about trying to minimize the objective self-awareness that, that we have. And, and if we can get ourselves to just be in that moment. So some of the things I mentioned earlier about listening to music, doing something physical can help. Reminding yourself that this is a, an, an interaction. It's a two-way street, even though I might be the only speaking if I'm giving a public speech. I can still try to connect with other people. I really try to engage them. I think about the value that I'm providing and, and the help that this can give to the people I'm talking to. And that's exciting. And, and, and when you are in that place of being other focused, it takes you away from your own self-focus. So thinking, uh, the, the last thing I'll say that can really help is envisioning the communication as a conversation. A lot of people report this flow-like experience in really meaningful conversations. And I'm, I hope for all of you and all your listeners that we can think back to situations where we were so engaged and in, involved in the conversations we've had that time flew by, that we, we missed appointments, et cetera. And if you can convince yourself that when you are presenting on a podcast, presenting in a meeting, delivering a presentation, uh, that those are conversations that can invite that type of experience in. So I want to revisit an experience that I had earlier this year. Uh -huh. And um, so I, I know you discriminate between uh, plant speaking and spontaneous speaking. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Thank you. But this past March, I gave a talk at a national conference mm -hmm. to dermatologists about a rare skin disease and some of the research I'm doing in a rare skin disease. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned about being in service to the audience. And I think what I was feeling at the time was... I wasn't going to be of any service to the audience because there are much better, there are much larger experts than I am, even in the disease that I was studying. Mm -hmm. And so if we could go back to February, what would you tell me as I was preparing for a talk where I was nervous that the audience wasn't going to accept what it is I wanted to give them? Mm. So first, congratulations on an opportunity to present at an, at an auspicious you. occasion like that. I know those are not easy to come by. So congratulations. So I would challenge you to think about, even if these people have some expertise in the same domain and the specific disease you were talking about in your case, is there something about the approach you took or the findings that you found or the questions that arise as a result of that work that might 
be of value to them in some way. You know, maybe it, it's not adding something new to the literature, but maybe it, it helps people avoid a pathway that, that might not be, uh, that might cause them to waste time or, or might refocus them in a way that, that might not be beneficial. So I really believe that there is always value, some value in the communication. And in your case, you just really need to find that value and lean into it. Um, it is very easy to get intimidated by others in the room, their experience, their power, their status, their, their history. And if you can focus on the content and realize that not everybody, every single person in the room has to find value. If you can find something that works for the majority of people, then, then that's something there. So, so let, me, let me switch the tables on you, Peter. Um, is there something that in that talk could have helped somebody there, uh, if not with some new revelation, at least with uh, something that might change the way they think about it or do research into it? Yeah, so I, I think so. We were in this, in this presentation, the data that I was presenting was the first um, set of data that we anyone has used in a specific disease analyzed by the techniques that our lab uses. And it provides a greater resolution to what immune cells are dysregulated in this disease. And so I was presenting a very preliminary set of findings that I had. That uh, to me sounds very provocative and very interesting. So I, that's, but, I'd lean into also, that. I also felt that um, in a way, I almost didn't trust the results at the time because they were so preliminary. And why should I be speaking at one of the largest uh, dermatology conferences in the nation? If, uh, yeah. you know, but again, I was selected. So like, it was a weird, it was a weird experience. Between, like, and so balancing. remind yourself of that. I mean, remind yourself that somebody external to you looked at this and said, there is some value here, mm -hmm. right? And it's so, I mean, and you're not alone. I mean, I teach Stanford MBA, some of the brightest potential new young business leaders in the world. And they come in with a lot of that self-doubt too. And, and I, I do specific work on that. Um, and I borrow a lot from the world of improvisation. So this gets into that, that spontaneous speaking piece you alluded to. You know, many of us are so regimented and evaluate everything we say, or even before we say it, that that gets in the way of us actually being able to be successful in the first place. And there's a wonderful slogan from improv that I, I try to share with as many people as I can. And, and it's quite simple. It says, dare to be dull. I mean, I have the audacity to stand up in front of Stanford MBAs and say, dare to be dull. No one in their life has ever told them that. And I'm sure the same is true with you, Kevin, Peter. I mean, you guys are very successful. I, if somebody said dare to be dull, you'd be, what? What do you mean? But the logic behind this is the, is the following. When you put so much pressure on yourself to be great and to do it right and to make sure that you're adding uh, something to the esteemed knowledge base of your field, that puts so much pressure on you that the likelihood you'll be able to do it well is reduced significantly. So when you just say to yourself, hey, I've got a paper, I found some interesting results, I'm just gonna share it, just do it, dare to be dull, you then have a whole bunch of cognitive resources that you can now invest in doing it really well. So that pressure we put on ourselves, that, that's, that doubting, that imposter syndrome, all of that works against us actually being successful. It's hard to change, believe me, it's hard mm -hmm. to change. But if you start playing with that approach, it can it can set you up for much more success than than you could imagine. I've heard you say that phrase before uh, in one of your other talks, and you say it takes practice and it's tough to do. And so what I'm wondering is, what are some things that people can do 
you know, whether it's driving to work or just Mm -hmm. in their everyday life that they can work towards being more spontaneous and not practicing what they're planning to say while the other person's responding and doing all these negative things that make us more robotic and less spontaneous. Yeah. So let me, let me make one thing very clear. I do believe practice is important when you're in situations where you can practice, but, but practicing in the moment while somebody is asking you the question rather than paying attention, that's not what I recommend. So I am a big fan of practicing skills you're trying to develop in low stakes, low stress situations. So when you are conversing with your friends or your family, are there some things you can do to practice some of your spontaneous speaking? So for example, when you're talking to some friends, could you work on your listening skills, your being present oriented skills by trying to paraphrase what they say? And I'm not saying a big paraphrase where I'd say, oh, Caleb, what I just heard you say was, I I could just say, oh, you want to learn more about spontaneous speaking? Well, let me tell you, right? So I just highlight some key element, developing the skill of being present and listening and responding immediately. That's a great skill to have. You know, if you play a sport, you do a lot of drills before you actually get out on the field or the court to play the sport. The same is true in speaking. So find safe, low stakes situations where you can practice. So that's one thing. The other thing you can do is start to pay attention to what others do in their communication. A lot of becoming a better communicator is not just practicing your communication, it's observing and listening to others and see what others do. And I'm not saying you copy, but you notice. You might say, wow, it's really interesting how that person always starts what they say with a question. And I notice when they start with a question, people lean forward, people seem more engaged. So maybe you put questioning as a, as a tool in your toolkit. And then you can try it again in a low stakes situation and see if it works for you. So it really comes down to practicing and listening and observing. And then the last thing I'll say is if you can associate any of these habits with already occurring behaviors, that's the best way to take on a new habit. So many people, for example, will use filler words when they speak ums, uhs, likes, and I means. And the ones that really bother us are the ones that come between phrases. So when I'm done speaking, um, and then I start speaking again. Well, if you practice ending every sentence, so you are completely out of breath, you have to inhale before you can speak again. And that helps eliminate those filler words. So how do you practice that? Well, I recommend everybody, when you look at your calendar for the day, just read the first five things on your calendar out loud. And at the end of each one, make sure you're fully out of breath. You're already looking at your calendar. You do that multiple times a day, just one time a day, read out loud, come to a complete stop being out of breath, and then start again. And you'll see that you start reducing some of those filler words. So it's about practicing in low stakes situations. It's about listening and it's about finding ways of associating new habits with existing habits. You mentioned the filler words. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah. And I think one of the reasons why people always do that is because they're afraid of silence when they're speaking. Mm-hmm. And can you talk for a minute about using silence and using the way you're saying things to increase how you're able to communicate with the audience? Yes, I can. I just wanted to put that little pause in there to demonstrate. <laughs> I didn't want you scared that I froze on, on, the, on the virtual. <laughs> that's part. what I was, that's what I was yeah. wondering. <laughs> exactly. I, was, I was wondering if I froze. <laughs> right. So, so pausing is, is an important tool. 
there are several reasons why you need to be thinking about how you fill time. Uh, one is if you speak very quickly and you don't pause, then people get exhausted listening to you. People track. So as you're speaking, people are following just behind you. And if you never stop, people get really tired. So taking a pause lets people catch up and then they can, then they can have more energy to follow you even longer into your conversation or, or your presentation. So pausing is a way of keeping your audience with you and giving them the mental breaks they need to, to stay focused. Pausing is also a great way to emphasize. So you can, you can speak slower, and by pausing, you can really help people know what's important. In fact, there's some really interesting research that with little kids, I'm talking infants and new, newborn, well, not newborns, but, but very young kids, filler words like um and ah uh signal that what's following that is actually something that's really important to listen to. So one of the things that kids do, little kids do, is when they have a parent who says, so this is a, um, the kid is prime that when they hear um, that something following it is something interesting, new and novel. So this is actually baked in as a way that we communicate. What we've learned is as we get older, that with those ums and uhs can be distracting. And the goal is not to eliminate all of them, but it is to, to get comfortable with silence and to help yourself accept the value that pausing allows. Why, why is that switch in when we are younger, we associate um and ah uh with like a mm -hmm. thing that we have to remember or time to pay attention versus as an adult, we tend to have negative associations, not just in how distracting it is, but also in the maybe the capability of the person delivering the information. So I am not a cognitive linguist, so I don't know the exact answer. My hunch is this, that we actually do use the same methodology when people say um or uh or like or some of these, we do pay a little bit more attention to it. The problem is because we are paying more attention to it, when people do them very frequently, we see it as, as bothersome, right? So it actually signals pay more attention. And if you just did one or two of them, it would work great. But the fact is that you say, um, and then you say another, um, and then you say another, um, you've engaged my attention. And now I say, okay, I'm hearing a lot of ums because I'm paying more attention. So I, I think we fall into a, the, the pattern works, but when we overplay the pattern, it becomes annoying in kids. When we introduce things and speak to them, we don't speak for very long. Our sentences are much shorter. The words are, are have fewer syllables. So we don't have as many ums and uhs when we talk to the kids. So when we say it, it stands out. But as adults, we have much more complex language, sentence structure, et cetera. So we get more of them and it becomes more noticeable. Again, that's my conjecture. I know of no research that claims that, but I think, Peter, what's happening there is that we that the ums actually do signal more attention. And when we hear a lot of them, and because we're paying a lot of attention, it becomes annoying. It's a lot like uh, a very loud advertisement you see on TV. Like if you kept seeing it over and over and over again, you'd probably get sick of it and it wouldn't have your attention as much anymore. You just did a great job helping me explain something much more simply than I explained it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually funny. One of the comments on your the Stanford lecture I listened to of yours. It was like an hour long. And one of the yeah. top comments that was liked a million times was he doesn't say, um, the entire 60 minute presentation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I wonder, has that always been how you've spoken or did you have to train that out? And how did you get rid of your 
phrase that you would normally repeat? So I did work on it. I, I did work on it a lot. And I, and I don't believe that in that whole talk that there are no filler <laughs> words, but but there certainly aren't a, a lot of them, I, I would say. But I worked on it hard. I, I, I practiced. You know, we, we watch these speakers, these TED Talks, these other things, and we see these people and we say, wow, they're amazing speakers. They worked really hard. They had coaches who coached them. I have coached TED speakers. I've spoken at TED. I've been coached. I, I understand that it takes work just like any skill. And with that work, comes a reduction of the things that are distracting, comes a, a focus on the things that actually people like and, and can engage with. But it takes three, the only way you get good at communication is three things, repetition, reflection, and feedback. So you need to practice just like a sport or a musical instrument. You need to reflect what worked, what didn't work. You know that saying about insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That's how many of us communicate. We do the same thing over and over again without reflection. And then we wonder why we're not getting better. Well, you have to reflect. And then finally you need feedback. And that's where coaches, teachers, digital recording and watching yourself, all of that can help. I like how we're taking a microscope to a lot of these mannerisms and, and things that people do when they speak or bad, ha bad habits as we call them. And I want to look at one more. And this is something that Caleb and I realized after a bit of our time podcasting is Whenever someone would say something and we had a question that followed, we would say, so, and then our question. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get your opinion on why we were doing, we, we've been trying to stop and I think you've been doing a good, a good job, but I want to get your opinion on, on why we're doing that and what the benefit and pros and cons of using so, and then your question are. Maybe some alternatives too. So let me know. Uh, <laughs> we use so and now are the two default transitions that people use to get from one thing to the next. We feel that there needs to be a bridge and we, we fill that bridge with a pretty easy to invoke mental concept, the word so or now. Though, those, it, our brain plans for our communication almost in a hierarchical way. And at the lowest level of the hierarchy are simple words and phrases to transition. So now next, right? So when you're in the midst of thinking about what's my question, what direction do I want to take it on? I've got a lot of cognitive stuff going on. And so the easiest thing for me to do to jump onto the bandwagon where I want to go next is just say, so. You'll notice though, that facilitators, podcasters, people who do a lot of transitioning, who've done this for a while, they will build in bridges and transitions that are more robust. They're slightly higher up on that hierarchy that we use. So they might paraphrase and then link whatever they've extracted as a core idea to the next topic. Or they might paraphrase and then ask a question. So those are, those are other levels of the hierarchy to transition. So you're trying to transition, you're trying to take the airtime, and we often just default to what's easiest. So next, now. Whereas with a little more thought and a little more practice, we can make more robust transitions, which by the way, help your audience incredibly. I, I use the analogy of a tour guide all the time. Whenever you're communicating, you are a tour guide through your content. The number one place tour guides lose their audience is when they move from one place to the next. In other words, in the transitions. So if you take the time to have robust, complete transitions that capture what was just said and bridge to what's going to be said next, you're less likely to lose your audience. You'll, you'll keep the tour group together. We're speaking about transitions and Peter earlier mentioned 
that he wanted to talk about plan speech for a few minutes in the episode. And I think that this would be a great place to do that. And one of the things that you've talked about with plan speech is using speaking structure to answer questions. So you gave the example of problems, solution, benefits, or what, so what, now what. Can you talk for a minute about speaking structure and what that does for you and why people should use it when they're responding or when they're planning a speech? So Caleb, you're going to do really well on that test coming up later this week because you are a good student. You remembered lots of things that I've said. Uh, <laughs> so, so structure is critical. We have all listened to somebody who just rambles on and on, and it is super difficult to extract meaning, to have the vigilance you need to continue to pay attention. Structure makes the processing of information easier. In fact, neuroscientists call this processing fluency. It helps you process it more fluently. A structure is nothing more than a logical connection of ideas. And you gave two examples. So let's start with the first, problem, solution, benefit. This is something that many of us in my area of expertise, business, and at the business school, we talk about a lot because entrepreneurs, this is, this is what they're all about. They, they found companies, they, they create services that are solving some kind of problem. They detail the steps involved in solving that or what you need to create to solve it. That's the solution. And then why should somebody invest, buy, or, or be concerned with it all? Those are the benefits. So it's a nice structure. It helps you package. It gives you a place to start, a place to end. It has built-in transitions. When I'm done talking about the problem, I simply say, so with that problem in mind, how do we solve it? All of a sudden, that transition is in there. So that structure helps. The second structure you mentioned happened to be my favorite. And I actually think people in the medical profession uh, could really benefit from this. And I do a lot of work with Stanford's medical school and, and talking to, to medical professionals. What, so what, now what? What is the idea you're talking about? Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's the results of your study. Maybe it is the advice that you are giving. That's the what. The so what is why is this important? What value does this bring or what potential can this bring about? And then the now what are the next steps you'd like somebody to follow? So imagine if you are meeting with a patient, you're explaining a particular condition or result that they have, you explain why it's important and what it means, and then what you uh, would like them to do, what the course of action is. It just packages it up so nicely. Now, you asked me this question under the rubric of planned presenting. Structure is also what helps with spontaneous speaking. If you were to ask me a question or ask me to introduce you or share some knowledge, teach a, a mini lecture on the spot, I can leverage these structures to help because in a spontaneous moment, I have two fundamental tasks to address, what to say and how to say it. The structure tells me how to say it. So all I have to do is say, okay, I'm gonna explain what it is, why it's important and what next. Then all I have to do is think about what goes in each of those buckets. So actually speaking spontaneously helps you, not just your listener, because it gives you a place to start and a place to end. So I am a huge fan of structure. I believe most communication should be structured. Now people will say, well, then doesn't it lose its, uh, its, its flair, its, its ability to flow? No, it doesn't. In fact, structure helps. Uh, structure helps with flow. Structure helps with memory. Structure helps with listening. It, it, it's got a lot of upside for us. We want to, I know our time is coming to an end, and I want to make sure we talk about this because mm -hmm. it seems like Zoom is here to stay. Clearly, <laughs> we're doing this interview on Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, but communication 
through Zoom is a problem. And I'm wondering if you could give us a few tips for our next live event or for anyone else giving out a Zoom presentation about things that um, people do or people can do giving a Zoom talk to make it more engaging because clearly the typical things that you would do in an in-person event don't work always on Zoom. Right, so the two biggest challenges with virtual communication are presence and engagement. So presence is how you show up. And a lot of us you know, aren't actors and actresses. We're not used to being in front of cameras. And so there's some simple things that you can do to have a stronger presence. Allow me to give you three bits of advice. The first is how you posture yourself. Take your, I love talking to medical professionals. So I can say your scapula, your shoulder blades, <laughs> those bones in the back, pull those down towards your waist. It makes you broader. It makes your chest broader. I'm not saying puff your chest out. So it's not bring your elbows back. Just pull those scapula down. See how that makes me look broader. It also helps me sit up straight. So you want to be big. You want to fill space. When I make myself small or far away from the camera, I look less confident. So you want to be big. The next thing you want is to be balanced. You want your head straight. You don't want to be tilting or leaning. Big balance and then still. A lot of us move around and rock. Big balance and still. Now, I'm not saying be stiff. I'm just saying be balanced and still. That's number one. Number two, look directly at the camera. Many of us want to look at the people's video if they're showing their videos, but that often means we have to look down. And it is if in person, I'm looking at your feet rather than looking at your eyes. So I want to look at the camera. That means I'm missing out on your responses. Yes. But you watching me look at like I'm looking at you. And that's what we want because eye contact, at least in North American culture, is something that's really important. And then the final bit of presence is you want to vary your voice. Since we don't have all of the other nonverbal cues that we typically rely on, voice becomes more important. If you talk in a monotone, monorate way, people habituate and they just don't pay as much attention. So you just want to make sure there's some variety in your voice. Now, I don't mean go overboard. I simply mean make sure that your voice is varied. The single best way to practice for a, a virtual call is to record yourself. And most of these tools have a recording feature Record yourself and watch. It is the most painful, but it is the most instructive way to see because you see what you're doing. The second problem with virtual communication is engagement. And there are a couple things we can do to foster engagement. One is to use what I call physical engagement tools. Ask questions, take polls, have people type into the chat, show them something that's provocative, a video clip or an image. That will help them get involved because you're stimulating multiple modalities. I have to do something. I have to watch something. I have to answer a question. That gets people engaged. The second thing to do is to use linguistic engagement. Use words like you. When you use the word you, people pay attention. All of us have been trained since we were young kids by our parents, our teachers, that when you hear the word you, you should pay attention. So by putting the word you into your communication more, you invite people in. And using analogies. Uh, Peter used an analogy to a, a loud television commercial. I used an analogy to a tour guide. Analogies stimulate interest and get people focused and engaged. So there are things you can do for presence. There are things you can do for engagement that can help because you are absolutely right. Virtual communication is here to stay. How frequent we use it, do we use it exclusively or do we use it in a hybrid fashion? I don't know, but it's here and it's here to stay. One of the questions that we always end our interviews with because we believe that readers are leaders or leaders are readers. Mm -hmm. And you wrote a book called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. And that's definitely something that we will send our audience to. 
what are some other books that you would recommend for speaking and for improving communication? Thank you for asking. And thank you for suggesting my book. I do think it, it can help people. Uh, Beyond Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, the other book that I always recommend is, is a book called Made to Stick. It is a fun book to read. It is written by both Dan and Chip Heath. Chip Heath also teaches at Stanford's Business School. And it really talks about how do you make ideas stick in people's minds? So it gets to the point of engagement. Now, it's not talking about Zoom or virtual communication, just simply how can we make ideas stick? And the book gives six approaches to make ideas stick. Because the, the bottom line is this, attention is the most precious commodity we have in the world today. Uh, everything is constantly striving for our attention. So something that can really make ideas stick can help. So that's the, the go-to book that I recommend beyond, of course, the book I wrote. I hope that's helpful. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming on and speaking with us. Peter, did you enjoy the show? Absolutely. I feel like I learned a lot. Excellent. Well, thank this you both. Great. This was great. Good luck with your test, Caleb. Thank you. I appreciate that. So that's all for today. Thanks everyone so much for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Hopefully you were able to learn something new and get a better perspective of how we can improve as leaders. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also contact us and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.